those that are a part of that, the children can go back to practice for the Christmas play. Go back that way, Norbin. Good job. It may have been uh, interesting for you just now that for our, our Christmas series, we just sang Man of Sorrows. Um, but that was actually one I requested uh, because I believe it will be so fitting um, as we continue studying today. Um, we, we're beginning a series called The Wonder of Christmas. The Wonder of Christmas. And so uh, if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This is uh, one of the two main places the Christmas narrative, of, narrative is given. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, then Luke chapter 1 and 2 both uh, give the Christmas narrative um, in some detail. And, and again, the, the title of this series is The Wonder of Christmas. And, and the reason I, I named it that is I am convinced that what happened, that first Noel, that first Christmas, is one of the most wonder-inspiring and awe-inducing history <laughs> events in history. Sorry, haven't woken up yet. What happened that first Christmas is one of the most wonder-inspiring and awe-inducing events in the history of the world. Like, they're, they're, uh, truthfully, I believe that the wonder of Christmas is only surpassed by the wonder of the cross. And wonder is just uh, something that, that is a spectacle, something that it makes you think on it, you behold it, and it's just, it, it like just inspires this, <gasps> I cannot believe that happened. That's, that's wonder. And I believe Christmas is the second most, only, only uh, surpassed by the cross, uh, most wonder-inducing events in history. And so the reason, I, again, I did this series is if this is true, that Christmas is so wondrous, the, cr the true Christmas story of Jesus, if it is so wondrous, then why does it often become so monotonous and even boring to us? We, uh, at some point, must have been given uh, a book that it has two stories in it. It's a Christmas book. It has the night before Christmas, and then it has the Christmas story. Okay, so you have the Santa version, when, you know, like you hears this, you know, reindeer on the roof and throws open the window and all of that. But then after that is the, the true biblical Christmas narrative. And um, which one do you think like is often more like exciting, even to me as I read it, like the, the night before Christmas is just like, <gasps> you know, like the, this. And I, I don't even like Santa. Like, um, I, anyways. So here's kind of where I'm going with this. If Christmas is so wondrous, then why do we feel we need other things to make Christmas more exciting? We need stories of, we feel, we feel we need stories of Santa and the snowman to make Christmas feel magical. We, we need lights and trees and decorations to make Christmas seem beautiful. We need movies, songs, and carols to make Christmas feel joyful. And we need Christmas parties and family gatherings to make Christmas feel relational. And what I want to tell you is, while there may not be, you know, anything wrong with those, you know, we, we've been listening to Christmas songs literally all year for uh, the past couple years. Our, our kids use uh, Silent Night to go to sleep every night. We uh, decorated our house, I think, two days after Halloween. I know we break the rules. It's all good. Um, and, and, like, you know, like, we, we cannot wait for our, our church Christmas party and family gatherings. Like, we cannot wait for those things. So I'm not calling these things wrong that we do. I mean, we've literally decorated our sanctuary. But what I'm telling you is a problem is when we need those things to make Christmas wondrous. If you were to remove all the decorations, the songs, the family gatherings, the presents, especially young people, if you were to remove those things, would Christmas still be an exciting time of the year for you just to think about what, uh, what happened? So what if I told you, what if I told you that Christmas, what really happened, the true story of Christmas, uh, really is more magical than any Santa Claus or snowman we can make up. 
I mean, I'm using that word magical loosely, uh, but it really is a, a miraculous thing that occurred. What if I told you that what happened is more beautiful than any trees or decorations we could put up? What if I told you it was more joyful than any songs we could see or movies we could watch? And what if I told you it was more relational than any parties or family gatherings? Because it is an invitation to a horizontal relationship with God. That is where we're going today. We need to gain for the first time, or for many of us, to regain the wonder of Christmas. Our hearts should be bursting with joy when we think about what happened that first Christmas day. So let's read together <clears throat> Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. I confess to you that um, this is just a text I picked out of, of many because it seemed to hit most of the points that I, I wanted to talk about, but my sermon is really formed from both Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Uh, but this passage will help give us a little taste of what's going on here. So Matthew 1, 18 to 25, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So she's pregnant. And her husband, or fiancé if you like, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I'm sorry, I had this up on the screen, but we'll keep going. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You've probably heard this passage uh, hundreds of times, you know, if you've been around, grown up in the church. But what I, what I want to show you today is this passage should shock us. It should astound us. It should fill us with awe and wonder. So we are going to dig in. We're going to clear off the dust or maybe shine new light on this passage uh, to help you see the wonder of Christmas. Let's pray together before we dig in. Father God, I'm just asking uh, for your grace. God, we are so prone to, to wander away from the truth, so prone to set our hearts on other things. We're so prone to spend our lives searching for things that excite us when it's all right here before us. You've already done it in the person of Jesus Christ. So God, I, I pray that as we study this passage and study this Christmas narrative, that you would restore in our hearts and minds the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of what you've done. And God, I pray and believe that wonder leads to worship. When we are in awe of, when we are um, wondering at such a spectacle, God, I believe it will lead us to greater worship to you. So God, I pray you would do this today. And I pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we, we read this text uh, a moment ago, let's see here, it's, uh, I think I've got it in the slide. There we go. I've got the, the, the verses up there, or a couple of them. It says here, this is after the angel has spoken to Joseph. He's told him what is going on. Mary really uh, is pregnant, but it's from the Holy Spirit, not from a person. And then Matthew, the author of this gospel that we're studying, kind of adds this uh, narratival quote or um, commentary, I guess you'd say. He says, this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the first thing that we need to look at there, number one, is the wonder of divine glory. The wonder of divine glory. Because I, I'm convinced that Christmas will remain boring for you as long as God remains boring for you. So what is it to say, oh, Jesus is the reason for the season? What is it even to say, okay, God came in the flesh if you don't know the infinite glory of God. We see there his name. I mean, the angel has already told Joseph, by the way, that his name will be called Je uh, Jesus. His name will be called Jesus. But then he adds here, and, his, and they shall call his name or his reputation Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the point is, this is literally going to be God with amongst us. And so what I want to do, again, this is just kind of doesn't feel like Christmas, but I'm telling you it will make Christmas uh, so much more important if we understand the glory of God. So I want to set this foundation just for a moment. Who this is, the astounding, incomprehensible glory of the one who is going to take on flesh that first Christmas. So I'm just going to give you a few passages that highlight this. Um, Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So I mean, just even have some imagery there high and lifted up. The train of the robe was, was a sign of dignity and honor. The longer the train, the more honor. The train of his robe filled the whole temple. And then we get into this. Above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic spirit beings. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who, is call, who, is, who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I mean, you just have this, this image here of this one who is high and lifted up, full of dignity, full of honor, and you have these very impressive angelic beings, <laughs> six wings, with two, they are covering their face to keep their face from seeing this Lord. With two, they are covering their feet, just showing the dignity of the one before them. With two, they fly and they shout to one another, holy, holy, holy. By the way, that three-time repetition is a Hebraic way of saying this is absolute holiness. This is 20 exclamation points after the word holy. This means he right there, this one that I can't even look upon, is utterly perfect. He is utterly glorious. He is awesome. That is what it means to say holy, holy, holy. And then we even see there the whole earth is filled with his glory. Man, we could dig in here for a long time. You say, what does that even mean? I think it means something similar to Psalm 19.1 uh, that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his firmament. This is, this, is, this is this idea that you see the sun bursting energy 70 million miles away or whatever it is, bursting heat on you. I mean, we, we guard our eyes from it. We get burned by it if we're out in it too long. That is just a glimpse of the glory of God. The beauties you experience in this earth, a sunrise, a beautiful person the beautiful music you hear, all of that is just a little drop of God's glory that you get to experience. The whole earth is full of his glory. Anything that you enjoy, anything that makes your heart sing or brings you comfort or peace is just a reflection of the glory of this God whose uh, robe, his, the train of his robe fills this temple and these angelic be beings call out his holiness. 
We can move to the New Testament for a moment, Revelation chapter 4. I mean, we just got to be startled by these things, once again, of who we're talking about. Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it says, uh, John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. I mean, you got to know who's on the throne anytime it's a, a heavenly vision. This is God. And he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I mean, this is John grasping for words. Uh, an emerald, no, sorry, a, uh, a jasper and a carnelian. Those are both precious gemstones. I, look, I googled them. They're, they're pretty. They are translucent. They're usually a reddish color. They can be uh, other colors as well. At least jasper can be. But these are translucent stones, and, and, and they're shining out this rainbow in front of the throne. All of this is like, well, is that just lights? You know, they got a really cool, uh, uh, you know, sanctuary lights. No, this is all just coming from God sitting there on the throne. This is precious beautiful God, this one sitting on the throne. Just, I mean, literally indescribable. He's just grasping for words. And then I think of this, man, we trifle with God so much. Uh, and then I, I read this passage and, and it um, startles me. Exodus 33, this is Moses' encounter with God's glory. And we just need to be shocked here for a moment about who came that Christmas. Exodus 33 verses 18 to 23, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. <laughs> I mean, let that settle on you for a second. Like, you cannot actually physically see my face and still survive. That's how glorious and holy I am. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand uh, on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. That is a gap in the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. <laughs> this is crazy. And what was the result of this, by the way? A few verses later, uh, it, um, it, actually in the next chapter, but it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the mountain where this uh, happened, where he saw the back of God's glory, when he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And get this, when he comes down, the people are terrified. They are terrified of the reflection of the back of God in his glory. This is an awesome God unimaginable, infinitely awesome God. God, I want to see your glory. You, you can't see my face and live, but I'll allow you to see this glimpse of the back after I pass by. And he comes back with his face literally glowing. And Moses literally has to wear a veil after he meets with God because it is so terrifying to the people. We, we, we need to get this. You literally cannot overstate the glory of God. You cannot do it. Why? Because God's glory is infinite. That means it has no bounds. It is inexpressible. It literally cannot be contained in the words that we might put upon it. It is unfathomably beautiful and powerful. God is glorious. This is part of who he is. We have some foundation here for who we're talking about, okay? And we got to know, verse 23, once again, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, I hope you hear it differently this time, God with us. 
This is startling. <laughs> this is crazy. I, I hope we don't miss that. This will be one, a 100% human that comes to be with us, but it will be 100% God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is God. And so we, we kind of have this idea of the, the wonder of divine glory. This is the one who is coming into this world. And so we might expect for there to be this grand entrance, like there's a, a, a letter that gets mailed out to everyone, like, hey, or how about not even a letter? How about angels just everywhere saying, hey, guys, get ready. The king is coming. Come to uh, Jerusalem. Come to the temple. Come to, you know, these big civic centers because the king is coming. Then you expect to see this stretch limo pull up and this big, strong, courageous man walk out with power and he just zaps things, you know, like, I mean, this is what you expect to see when God takes on flesh. The God deserving all honor, praise, and glory. You expect to see something really crazy here. But that is not what we will see, and that's our next point. The wonder of divine humility. The wonder of divine humility. This is so counterintuitive, it, it's amazing. I, I love digging deeper and deeper. I, can't, I couldn't even fit in this sermon all the things that show the wonder of divine humility. But this is just so counterintuitive to what we would think. Okay, if I'm God, if I have the right of worship from everyone and all power and might and beauty and glory, I'm going to come as a pretty awesome person. And I, I'm going to come and people are going to worship me immediately. They're going to know who I am. I mean, I, this is just in our DNA. I, I think of the story of Aladdin, right? Aladdin, the, the, the story, Aladdin was a poor, homeless young man. He finds a, le a lamp with a genie in it, right? He gets three wishes, and what does he do? He makes himself appear rich and powerful. But with Christmas, we have the exact opposite. We have the infinitely rich, infinitely powerful, infinitely beautiful God bend down and take upon himself humility. The glorious creator and king of the universe came lowly and poor. So I want to just show you quickly. I, I, I cannot spend too long on, on any of these. But just uh, five different ways that we can see divine humility in Christmas. A there is God. I'm using God. It's God the Son. Okay, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it is no less God, the one who became Jesus. God came as a baby. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took this way. Took place this way. So it's like, okay... Emmanuel, God with us. This is going to be astounding. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, God with us. Uh, Emmanuel, God with us took place. Wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me God is going to be born as a baby? Again, we've had a lot of babies lately uh, in, in this church. And um, I think about five years ago, I wouldn't have quite known the significance of the fact that God came as a baby. But uh, four and a half years ago, uh, we had our first child, and then we've had two more since then. And so um, I've become pretty well acquainted with <laughs> what a baby is like. I mean, first, by the way, you could consider that uh, labor and the actual birth is one of the least glamorous things I can think of. When we think of this silent night, how about screaming, right? A mom and then the baby when it comes out. He's so sweet and tender. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm going to make people not want lunch. So, the birth. I mean, this is God came through normal human birth. And then he came as a baby. I 
I mean, there are a few things that compare. I mean, maybe someone has an accident or something in their life, but there are a few things, few, few human conditions that make you more weak and vulnerable than being a baby. Weak and vulnerable. My kids don't come out mowing the lawn or doing the dishes. I don't know about yours. Um, a baby needs their mother to feed them or they will die. A baby needs their parents to protect them. A baby needs their parents or someone to take them from one place to another. They can't move. They need someone to support their neck because they can't even lift their head yet. They lack the strength, weak and vulnerable. Now, that's an experience that we all have as a human being, and it's like, okay, yeah, I once was a baby. I once was very, very weak and vulnerable, could, could add no uh, you know, value or productivity to my house, and I needed everyone to take care of me and protect me. And that's just normal for us. But when we take the wonder of divine glory and then bring, pack all that glory into this helpless babe, it should shock us should absolutely shock us. I, I thought of some, some ways to talk about this. I, I hope this will be helpful. The God who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand, I mean the heavens, anyways, the span of his hand made himself so small that he could fit in his mother's arms and be laid in this little manger. Jesus created and sustains everything, according to John uh, 1, 1 through 4. Created and sustains everything. So that means this little helpless baby had literally created and sustained his mother in the womb that had carried him. The God who gives us this day our daily bread needed his mother to keep him alive with milk. That's, that's the position he put himself in. The God who clothes all the forests of the trees. Think of the Amazon forest. I mean, just miles and miles, millions of acres clothed with trees by God. All the fields are clothed with grass. And all the lilies of the field, God clothes more beautifully than the splendor of Solomon. Needed his parents to wrap him in swaddling cloths to keep him warm. We could go on and on about how wondrous this is. I, I thought about actually doing this, but I think I'd have gotten in trouble uh, with, anyways. Um, I thought about literally having uh, my wife bring our, our one month old up here and saying, who wants to bow down and worship? I mean, it is, it is a terrifying idea to me that people, you have these shepherds, you have these wise men a little later, maybe not quite, you know, newborn stage anymore, but I mean, they, that they, there's this baby, teeny helpless cooing, crying, whatever it's doing, sleeping. It's about all they do. And to say, there he is, my God, my Savior. I worship you. I give you these gifts. I give you my life to this little seven-pound whatever baby. This is wondrous that God chose to come, not in power, but in weakness and vulnerability. We got to keep going or we'll never get through this. God came into a scandalous family. God came into a scandalous family. If I uh, were to ask you, like say, hey, if you were God, would you choose to be in the family you are currently in? Okay, if you could choose to be in any family in the world, would it be the one you're in? Some of you would probably say, yeah, my, my family's great. Like, I mean, we're all supportive. We're kind. You know, my, my parents and my grandparents, we just got this great legacy, and it's wonderful. Others of you would say, I would pick literally any other family. Maybe generations of alcoholism and abuse, imprisonment. I mean, may, maybe that's what you have in your family. You say, my, you don't get it. My, my family is dysfunctional. You don't want to be in it. However you would answer that question, what I want to point out is you point out is the fact that you have an opinion. There is something to the family you grew up in. It can, can bring honor or it can bring infamy to your life. And what I want to point out is that God, rather than coming into this premier 
clean family came into a family with scandal and, and definitely even apparent scandal. I, I first do want to talk about the apparent scandal. You, you have the, this idea, you know what, I'm going to switch it around. Let's talk about the actual scandal. <laughs> the actual scandal of Jesus' family. Uh, in Matthew 1, and then I believe it's in Luke 3, yeah, Luke 3, you have the genealogies of uh, Joseph and Mary's uh, family, okay? Uh, Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy. Uh, Luke gives us Mary's genealogy, that is their, their, their descendancy, who, who is uh, their direct line. And, and here's the interesting thing. As you read these, these names, it is actually more difficult to find people in there that aren't messed up and did terrible things than it is to find ones that did bad things. I mean, as I read through them, unless the Bible doesn't talk about them, um, I can pretty much name something bad about every single one of the people in their line. Um, and, and I'm not going to do that right now, but I want to pick out a couple of them for you. Um, in Matthew 1.5, it says, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse's David, by the way, King David's father. So, you have Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. What, what is Rahab's nickname? Anyone? Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. Included in the genealogy is someone who was a prostitute. Now, I'm not saying that when she had Boaz that she was still in that line of work. I think God did some work in her life. Uh, and you can uh, see that in, in uh, the book of Joshua. But... I mean, she, she had been a prostitute. And so Rahab the harlot is a part of his, not only his genealogy, but his public genealogy that is now recorded for all of history. I mean, this would be like having Danny the drug dealer, you know, or I, I don't know, <laughs> I was trying to think of these, Harvey the hitman, like, yeah, he's my descendant. Like, those aren't things that you're exactly proud of. It brings shame on you. People might not trust you as much just by knowing you're descended from that person. I remember even, this kind of works with names a little bit, but um, my parents named me Jeff, and it wasn't long until Jeffrey Dahmer came on the scene, and my parents were like, ah, <laughs> like that's not going to help. Um, if you don't know who he is, look him up. Um, Jesus, God, came into a family of scandal. Oh, I, I, I forgot the, the most scandalous, really. It says, uh, verse 6 there, Matthew 1, 6, And Jesse, the father of David, listen to this, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Isn't that weird wording? By the wife of Uriah. So do some math there. David has Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Uh, it means what it says. He had Solomon by the wife of another man. So Uriah was one of his soldiers. In fact, he was one of his mighty men, by the way, his close, tight-knit group. Uriah, is, uh, the Hittite, is one of his mighty men, close soldiers that had spent all this time with him in the, the wilderness while Saul uh, was chasing him. And so Uriah is off in battle, and David sees his wife and wants her and uh, takes her. Adultery is committed. Then, then uh, uh, his, his wife becomes pregnant. And so in order to cover it up, he has Uriah killed in battle. He says, send the men forward, then, then call the people back and leave Uriah there. And it works. Uriah is killed. So he has committed adultery with his friend's wife, and then he's had his, uh, his uh, friend murdered to cover it up. I'm not going to spend too long here, but I mean, that, that's, that's pretty scandalous. I don't want to dog on David. Man, I've made my mistakes too, uh, for, for sure. He was a man after God's own heart, uh, but this is, this is some pretty messed up, scandalous stuff. And, and this is the family lineage that Jesus came into. But now I want to point out to you the apparent scandal of Jesus' conception. So that's lineage. Those, those are far off people, but what about Jesus himself? We, we already read this um, earlier, but Matthew 18, Matthew, sorry, 1, verses 18 through 20, just let's remember how it started. 
It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Have you ever stopped to think how profound that is? Have you ever stopped to think about what a scandal was really going on here? This is Mary's fiancé sees that Mary is pregnant, and he's like, I'm going to divorce her. I'm going to get, uh, engagement was a legally binding thing back then, so he had to legally break up the engagement. And that was what he was going to do until an angel told him, no, that th this is from the Holy Spirit. One of two things happened here. Uh, in Luke, we see that uh, Mary was told how the child, how she would become pregnant. And so either she told Joseph what the angel said, and he didn't believe her, couldn't believe her. I mean, would you, by the way? Your fiancé says, hey, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it's just from the Holy Spirit. Would you be like, oh, okay, well, we're good then. I mean, this is pretty unbelievable. He either didn't believe her or she just didn't tell him, and Joseph assumed the same thing everyone else assumes when you see someone got pregnant. Well, it didn't just happen, <laughs> you know, like, you know where they come from, right? That's the saying uh, people have. You know where they come from. Yeah, everyone knows uh, where, where babies come from. So they assumed there was sexual immorality and infidelity. And if Joseph felt that way, this is what I want to hit you, if Joseph thought that way and would have had not an angel told him differently, would have uh, separated this engagement, what do you think everyone else was assuming? Do you think everyone else is like, oh, she's pregnant. I wonder if it's the Holy Spirit. Like, that's just not what people think. They assume infidelity happened. There's an unmarried woman. She's betrothed to Joseph. Either Joseph and her came together before marriage or she was um, un unfaithful to him. Now, this was an apparent scandal, right? This is not a real scandal. That This did not happen. Mary had not sinned in this. Joseph had not sinned in this. Uh, but they could not get away from that stigma. But that is the way Jesus, God, chose to come into this world into a scandalous family. I got to keep going, I know. C, God came into poverty. We, we know this uh, for, for several reasons. First, you have this teenage girl, Mary. Thank you. First, you have this teenage girl, Mary. Then you have Joseph, a, a blue-collar carpenter. And so we can assume they were not rolling in cash, you know, like it's just not the way it would work then. But we don't even have to guess whether or not they had money. In Luke chapter uh, 2, verse uh, 24, it says, And they, that's Joseph and Mary, came to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You see that? You say, well, what's weird about that? This was about 30 days uh, after the birth. This was a, uh, a sacrifice for purification. So she's had a child. There has to be this purification. And um, they offered up uh, either, either two young turtle, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You say, well, why is that weird? Well, according to Leviticus 12, the, the, uh, the sacrifice was actually supposed to be a lamb and a turtle dove, okay? A lamb was what the, this family was supposed to have sacrificed, and a turtle dove, and this would be used uh, as the sacrifice for purification. But there was a stipulation, an exception in the law, that if you couldn't afford a lamb, if you were too poor, you could bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's exactly what we see happen here. They couldn't afford the proper sacrifice. Anyone who could would want to. They would want to give the right sacrifice to God, but they simply could not afford it. And so a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons is what they had to sacrifice. 
Again, we have to compare this. This isn't startling until we compare this with the wonder of divine glory. James 1.17 says that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 1 Timothy 6.17, just to paraphrase, says God provides the wealthy with their riches to enjoy and share and be riches. It's God who provides wealth. Yet the provider of riches chose to be impoverished when he came into our world. The God of limitless resources had to live on a budget and probably sometimes had to go without. You know, it's, it's interesting, the gift of gold that the wise men brought later, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gift of gold was right. It was fitting for the king of the universe who had arrived. But because God came in poverty, it was also necessary. They would have been able to use that gold to help them get by, especially on what they have to do here in a moment, we'll see. But it was a fitting gift for a king, but it was a necessary gift because he had made himself a pauper. Next, we see that he came into hardship. God came into hardship. Just a couple things here. He was, <clears throat> they, they had to be on a journey because they had to be registered. And so while they're on the journey, it says there in Luke 2, 6 through 7, and while they were there, the time for her birth, the t- time for her uh, came to, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, instead of trumpets sounding in this arena, here he is. He's in a stable. And just even this hardship of it, there was no room for them in the inn. Um, I I looked at the the Greek there. The word room is is a a topos. We get the word like topo. If you're a climber, you know what a topo is. It shows you the route and the space. But it actually just means uh, no, no place, no opportunity. So it could be that there were literally no rooms left uh, for them to, to stay in. Or it could be that they were so poor that they couldn't pay enough money to get a room, right? All these people are flooding to Bethlehem because they're having to be registered. Well, th- you, you sell your room to the highest bidder at that point. And so they had no opportunity. Either way, there was no place for them in the inn. And then he's born in a stable. Uh, we have at our house uh, three chickens, <laughs> three, three little chickens. We're hoping they make eggs soon. And uh, we have their, their, you know, little chicken coop and stuff. And up until recently, we actually had it in our house uh, because uh, it was so cold out and uh, they were too young at the time. We've, we've moved it outside now. Um, but I'll tell you, um, like I would go in, like stick my head in the hen house to change their water, to change their food. There is a particular odor <laughs> when you stick your head uh, in a hen house. You stick your head in there too long, you come out with that same odor, by the way. Jesus was born in a stable, not just with little chickens, but with, with big animals, right? If there's a, a manger, a feeding trough, there, there's big animals, and big animals make big odors. <laughs> I mean, this is where God was born. Uh, again, we're on our third uh, uh, child having been born. Like, I, I'm not having my, my, my wife go inside the hen house uh, to, to have her baby. No, like, everything's clean, everything's sterile. God chose to be born into hardship, and then he's laid in a manger. I hate that word, by the way, manger, because it is a sterilized way of saying a animal feeding trough. It removes the wonder, a manger. We don't use that word, a feeding trough. We know what that is. You slop some old scraps in there, their grain, whatever, and then they come up and eat out of it. They slobber in it. That's what Jesus, the God of the universe, this God of divine glory was laid in. He came in hardship. And then the next thing I want to point out to you, I don't have these verses up there, I apologize. Jesus, the God of the universe, was instantly put on Herod's most wanted list, and then he had to become a refugee in a foreign country. 
I mean, I, I'm hoping that I, I'm hoping that most of you haven't, you know, had a warrant out for your arrest. But God chose to be born with a target on his back, wanted. Uh, Matthew, let's see here. Matthew two thirteen to fifteen says. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child, for Jesus, God, to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So, so there's just like a couple crazy things here, okay? According to Daniel chapter 221, it is God who removes kings and sets up kings. So we need to put the divine glory back into this, okay? This God who was born had literally appointed Herod into his position. It is God who removes kings and sets up kings, and he literally could have removed Herod at any point. It's, he's God. It's what he does. It's his prerogative. And yet, he allowed himself to be, to be sought, to be killed, to have to flee to Egypt. And again, I think of this God who, who, who you know, for eternity past, uh, whatever, is glorious and then at creation has these these seraphim you know praising him holy 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 the lord god almighty I mean, like, this is this guy is now having to, to to run for his life or since he's a baby be carried you know a child we have missionaries in clarkston uh georgia which is a, a refugee city and um I've got, had the opportunity to go a couple of times. I know a, a bunch of you have been able to go down there as well. And just think about it, like when you drive past their ac- apartment complexes, they're just these, these refugees just like standing out there. Like, I mean, they're, they're foreigners. They, they don't quite fit in. They, they can't really, you know, make their way in life very easily. And I, I just um, am so thankful, um, you know, for where God has had me born and the situation he's had me and my family born into that, that that's not the case for us. But, I mean, it, it is, like, hard for me. It is heartbreaking for me to think Jesus, the God of the universe, was one of those refugees in a foreign country, a hard country. And that's the way God came in. He came in not with ease, not having people serve him, but he came into hardship. The last point I want to give you to show you this divine humility is God came under the curse. I I can't spend too long here, but God came under the curse. We'll we'll come to that verse uh, in in a moment. First, uh, like what is the curse? What am I talking about? I'm talking about Genesis 3. God made uh, the world and everything in it. God made Adam and Eve, and he gave them one command, but everything was perfect. Everything was perfect and made for flourishing and joy in God. But then Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, and this world was put under the curse. What was once perfect is now fractured and broken. And so, Uh, The curse, you know, the fact that we feel aches and pains, that we have problems of any sort, sorrows of any sort, troubles of any sort, is a continual reminder of the brokenness we cause by rebelling against God. We live in in the curse. Anyone feeling just a little off today? I mean, anything, a pain, a, a problem, relational issue, all of that is a part of the curse. Temptation to sin is a part of the curse, that we are born with that. But here's the thing. God chose to come into the world that is under this curse because of our sin, and he chose to experience all the aspects of the curse in order to save us from our sins. And we'll get to that in a moment, but seriously, think about this. Jesus experienced hunger and thirst. I mean, he literally fasted 40 days and nights at the beginning of his ministry. Um, 
but many times he was hungry, uh, as we see through the Gospels. Jesus knew what it was to be tired and overworked and underappreciated. I mean, you just watch him as he goes around preaching, give us more bread, like, ah, leave me alone, I need a minute. I mean, they literally ran from crowds sometimes just to, to, to not be, you know, to die from exhaustion. Jesus knew aches and pains as well as the agony of beatings. These are all the, the things that uh, we experience, and I'd say Jesus to a greater degree actually experienced these things. Jesus experienced the death of loved ones. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. The scorn of people. And being abandoned by his closest friends in his greatest time of need. I don't know about you, but like, those are all pretty depressing parts about life uh, before heaven. And God stepped out of heaven to enter into that, into and under the curse. But not only experiencing the, the fracture of the curse, God chose to take the punishment of the curse for those who sinned against him. And th this is the whole point of Christmas, I hope you understand. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And you see up there, uh, verse 21, the angel says this to Joseph. She will, bear, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, he'll save his people from their sins. He'll save his people from their sins. I think about later, uh, John the Baptist sees him, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what is that even talking about, the Lamb of God? In their context, what would it have meant for someone to call you a lamb that takes away the sins of the world? It's a sacrifice. They had, especially Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they would have a spotless lamb. And here's what they would do. They would impute their sins. They would uh, count the sins of all the people as though this lamb had committed them. This is what God had them do. And then they would slaughter the lamb and burn it as an offering to God. Now, now do some math here. Jesus, God, is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lambs back with uh, Yom Kippur, with the Day of Atonement, they were a picture of what was to come. Jesus is the reality. That, that the sins would not only be symbolically imputed on a, a lamb, and, and the lamb slaughtered and burned, but our sins would actually be imputed or, or counted as though they were Jesus. So, God is sinned against by us. We rebel against him. Because of that, we fall under the curse, both brokenness and one day eternal punishment under God's wrath. And the divine humility is that that glorious God who has been sinned against, that the wages of sinning against him is death, comes and dies our death and bears our sin. And by the way, you want to talk about experiencing the curse. He even knew the feeling of abandonment by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God came under the curse, the curse that was caused by our sin against him. He will save his people from their sins. This is unbelievable. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, he takes our sin, we get his righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
He says just a little bit later there, by his wounds <clears throat> we are healed. <coughs> I mean, th- this is, is shocking. It should be shocking. <coughs> the nativity scene, excuse me, <coughs> the nativity scene is not cute. It is amazing. <laughs> Jesus, God of the universe, laying in a manger is astounding awe-inspiring and wonder-inducing, and wonder should lead to worship. And this is what we get to celebrate this year. I'm not going any further uh, in your notes. I actually have the word end written in my notes right there because I knew I wouldn't make it. God, the glorious one, unimaginably glorious, infinitely glorious, objectively glorious, humbled himself as a servant, experienced all the pains and sorrows we experience, probably worse, poverty, hardship, most wanted, refugee, so that we could know him. And and a big part, by the way, of the incarnation is he experienced all these things so that we can know God can actually relate to me, and I can relate to God. He has experienced the same things I experienced, so when I say, God, I'm struggling with the temptation to sin, I want to do it, he can say, I remember temptation. I never sinned, but he has been tempted in every way as we have been, Hebrews says yet without sin. We can say, I'm struggling with this. We can say, God, I'm feeling lonely. You can say, yeah, I remember that. I remember loneliness. I remember abandonment. Whatever it is, you can do relationship with this God who purchased this relationship. This is the wonder of Christmas, both divine glory and divine humility. And the more we wonder, the more we will worship this God. Let's pray together. Father God, what do we say to this? How do we respond to this? That you are glorious beyond measure, worthy of all honor and praise, and yet you humbled yourself. You allowed yourself to experience all the afflictions of humanity and even the afflictions of a criminal. And you even bore our spiritual debt for our sin against you. God, it is wondrous what you have done for us. And so as we come to Christmas, let us see the magic that God became flesh. Let us see the beauty that God so loved the world. And let us see this relationship and this joy that you have brought. God, I pray all this, trusting you can do this in our lives, that you can take our eyes off the the lights of this world and put them on your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll worship. It's a sobering message, but a joyful one. I bring to you good tidings of great joy, the angel said to the shepherds, and so it should be for all of our hearts. 
I'm thankful for all of you that I get to prepare for and celebrate Christmas with you. Hope you're excited about the Christmas party next week at 6 o'clock, and I hope to see you here. And I want to remind you once again, those, those books there, get into a daily study of God's Word. Commit to it, open it, do it, answer the questions, and, and, and God will use it in your life. I'm very confident, because God's Word does not return void. Um, also, I just want to remind you, finances, we're still pretty far behind uh, on, on closing out this year well, so if, if God would, would uh, lead you to, to give and to maybe even give more than normal, that would be much appreciated. I love you all and hope you have a great week. I'll, I'll pray us out. Father God, continue to fill us with wonder, both at your glory and your self-chosen humility. God, help us to know we can relate to you, we can confess to you, we can confide in you, we can do relationship with you because the God of glory humbled himself and became a baby, then became a man, then became our lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Love you all.